Well, hi, friends. This is Matthew Dowling, and I am your host for the Preacher Cast, a discussion of Christianity, the Church, and life in Christ. This is the August 30th, 2021 edition of the Preacher Cast, and today we'll be looking at a number of items in the news. As always, today's discussion will be rooted in the Holy Bible, the inerrant and infallible Word of God. After the news today, we turn our attention to the theology segment of the Preacher Cast, where today I will be considering whether transgender identity is a part of God's design. Before we turn to the podcast, let me remind you that you can check out my blog, take advantage of the resources there, including a daily devotional published each morning. You can access my website at matthewdowling.org. You can also subscribe to The Preacher Cast over at anchor.fm. Go to anchor.fm forward slash preachercast, and you can access previous episodes of the show. You can subscribe to The Preacher Cast on Apple iTunes or on all major podcast distributors. Okay, let's turn our attention to this week's news and analysis. Indonesian police have arrested a Christian YouTuber after a recent video he uploaded on YouTube went viral and offended Muslims around the country, this according to reports from International Christian Concern. Last Wednesday, Muhammad Kasi, a former Muslim, was taken away by the police from his hideout in Bali after a series of complaints were filed by Muslims accusing him of blasphemy. His latest sermon video allegedly insulted the false prophet Muhammad by claiming the prophet was surrounded by devils and liars. John 14, verse 6 is clear. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. A COVID-19 Delta outbreak emerged in Australia last June, and the country adopted a COVID-0, so-called, strategy early in the pandemic. The government has repeatedly imposed draconian measures, rigorous testing, and closed international borders to eradicate the virus. In early August, Melbourne, Australia imposed a mystifying sixth lockdown because eight cases of COVID were detected. As cases of the Delta variant spread from the early clusters in the cities, nearly every major metro area went back to implementing lockdowns. They remain in place and bar people from leaving their homes except for essential exercise, shopping, and caregiving. Amazingly, roadblocks even began in Sydney on August 15th, with the military assisting. Residents organized anti-lockdown protests in several large cities for the weekend of August 21st. They continued even last weekend, and we are seeing some of the most rigid restrictions in that country to date. And of course, all know by this point, at least 60 Afghans and 13 U.S. servicemen have been killed in two suicide bombings last week at the Kabul airport last Thursday night. It was the worst day of casualties for U.S. forces there in a decade. The terror group ISIS-K claimed responsibility for the deadly double attack. President Biden vowed last Thursday to get even, saying this, quote, To those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. 
Well, Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas, a retired Navy SEAL, discussed the terror attack last Thursday in Kabul on Fox News, saying this, quote, I think we should take or retake, excuse me, more airfields throughout the country. You can't expect everybody to be going to this hellhole that is Kabul Airport right now. You need to retake Bagram Airfield and probably retake other airports as well. That will take troops on the ground and we'll take a complete reassessment of our strategy, but the military can do it. We just need the will politically to do it. Congressman Crenshaw explained that Democrats and Republicans shared one overriding concern, saying this, quote, it was amazing. Usually in these things, you see a lot of different discourse from Democrats or Republicans. But there was only one question being asked over and over again by Democrats and Republicans. Why can't we extend the August 31 deadline? Why can't we do that? He went on to say this, quote, unfortunately, what Pelosi actually had us vote on when she brought us back for recess had nothing to do with Afghanistan. It was everything to do with overspending on the Green New Deal wish lists. Unfortunately, we need the Congress to say, look, we're telling you, we want to extend the deadline. We're telling you, we're giving you the authority to go back in and get our people out for as long as it takes. That's what we want. I think what we really need is public pressure on Biden for this single mission Get our people out. Extend the deadline for as long as we need it. Moving to domestic news, Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott is surging the Texas National Guard to secure that state's border with Mexico, authorizing the Guard to arrest people who have crossed the border illegally and violated Texas law. This according to reports from CNSNews.com. Governor Abbott said this, quote, the Texas National Guard is playing an unprecedented role to secure the border because of the unprecedented refusal of the federal government to fulfill its obligations under federal law. Since Governor Abbott launched Operation Lone Star in March 2021, over 4,600 arrests have been made by the Texas Department of Public Safety for charges including criminal mischief and criminal trespass. Additionally, they have confiscated drugs and illegal firearms, including over 700 pounds of cocaine, 127 pounds of deadly drug fentanyl, over 8,500 pounds of cannabis, and over 270 firearms to date. Proverbs 21 verse 15 says, When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the uh, unrighteous, the wicked. When we return, we'll continue in our new segment, and then after that, we'll turn to our theology discussion for this week's Preacher Cast. More after the break. Appearing on Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, Jeff King, who is president of International Christian Concern, says the situation is dire for Afghan Christians. King said this, quote, Well, as you can imagine, the Christians are terrified. You know, there's the Christians that were around the airport, and then there's ten to 12,000 Christians in the country. Some of these Christians, especially some of those around the airport, were known. They've come out and said, hey, we're Christians. We're not going to hide. And for this group, you can imagine what life is like. Uh, Jeff King went on to say this, quote, So absolute terror. There's panic attacks every time there's a knock on the door. 
They're wondering if they're going to be dragged out and shot. Look, there's phone calls being made to Christians, and those phone calls go something like this. Yeah, hey, we know you're a Christian, and we're coming for you. The Taliban is actually going around door to door and asking, hey, who's going to mosque? Who's not going to mosque? Have you been to mosque? For the Christians who have been underground hidden, it's one thing. For those who have been out in the open, everyone's terrified, but especially that group. It is a very, very hair-raising experience. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 26 through 27 says this, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Moving to domestic news again, Republican Congressman Michael Waltz of Florida, a former Green Beret who served in Afghanistan, last Wednesday accused the White House of not being honest with the American people about what is really going on in Afghanistan and saying that it contradicts what he and his colleagues are hearing in private briefings. This, according to reports from CNSNews.com. Mr. Waltz said this, quote, We've received a series of briefings the last several days, and it is very clear that this White House is not being honest with the American people. We're hearing very different things behind closed doors from these briefers. The Defense Department, in no uncertain terms, told Biden and his White House to leave a residual force behind and do not do this. The intelligence community was clear that al-Qaeda 3.0 will come roaring back with the Taliban, that they are married at the hip and they fully intend to attack the United States again. And then finally, we have Americans right now, not just behind enemy lines in Kabul, but outside of Kabul. And there is a cap capability to get them, but the White House is not authorizing it. Either they are lying, heartless, clueless, or all of the above. This last weekend, we saw Hurricane Ida's initial impacts began early Sunday morning as the outer bands brought heavy rain to the Louisiana coast. The Category 4 hurricane, packing sustained winds of 150 miles per hour, came ashore at 11.55 a.m. Central Daylight Time near uh, the Port Fortune in Louisiana. Ida has become the first landfalling hurricane on United States soil in 2021, and AccuWeather forecasters expect extreme impacts for the Gulf Coast, having rated Ida a 4 on the AccuWeather real impact scale for hurricanes. We learned this weekend also that Ed Asner, the tough guy with the soft side who starred as the newsroom boss Lou Grant on the legendary sitcom The Mary Tyler Moore Show and on his own hard-hitting TV drama, died Sunday, according to The Hollywood Reporter. He was 91 years old. He earned seven Emmy Awards for his acting work. His family said this on Twitter about him, quote, We are sorry to say that our beloved patriarch passed away this morning peacefully. Words cannot express the sadness that we feel. With a kiss on your head, good night, Dad, we love you. Hebrews 9.27 says this, quote, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. It is a reminder that we all will die one day, and so we need to ask today whether our souls are prepared to meet the Lord. The only way to be truly prepared is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come back after the break with our theology section of the podcast where we're going to discuss the transgender issue. Is transgender identity part of God's design? More after the break. 
Well, our question this week on the Preacher Cast is an important one, a timely one, and a relevant one for all of us to be thinking about as thinking Christians. Is transgender identity part of God's design? You know, I remember as a boy seeing the 1940 film Pinocchio, where Jiminy Cricket sang a very famous song to a woeful little wooden boy who wanted to become something different. I remember being touched by that uh, cartoon, and yet I think back on it and realize that in our day, people no longer apply such inspirational messages in traditional ways. Jiminy Cricket once sang, Anything Your Heart Desires, but let's be honest today, that has been hijacked. In fact, in ways that Walt Disney could not imagine, such slogans now inspire people to surgically surgically remake themselves. Witness, of course, the spread of transgender identity in which men seek to become women and women seek to become men. In 2015, this is no extraordinary occurrence. It is an increasing trend and a major worldview challenge to the Christian church, and it's one that we've really been dealing with since 2015 and, of course, continue to do so here in 2021. So we wonder, how should we view the body, the physical body, as Christians? Well, the creators of Pinocchio back in 1940, of course, did not have transgender individuals in view when they made their famous movie. They simply wanted boys and girls to dream big. But as we know, the West, especially the Christian West, has started to be lost. In fact, the West has lost its Judeo-Christian moral constraints and, of course, its traditional vision of manhood and womanhood. And we have embraced a radical individualism. This mindset has created what theologian Albert Muller has called a cultural shift, And certainly we are in the midst of a radical culture shift right now. At the root of that is this radical individualism, which casts off all moral restraints in order to achieve maximum personal happiness. In Dr. Owen Strand's uh, book, Risky Gospel, he called this mindset narcissistic optimistic deism. We would summarize that rather onerous phrase in this way. I can do whatever I want. And many people think that, right? I can do whatever I want, and God exists to make all my dreams come true. This is what many people think today. And the fact is, this perspective has influenced how many people view their body, right? The body is not made by God for his glory, they think. It's a blank slate upon which we draw any identity, any self-expression we choose, We can use our bodies, we think. We can abuse them. We can do whatever we want with them. But of course, as Christians, we know this is a neo-pagan idea. How do we know that it's a a neo-pagan idea? Well, it's because the Bible teaches a very different perspective. Our manhood or womanhood is not incidental. It has been given us by God as a gift. In fact, we inhabit our God-created bodies as vessels of delight, temples of the Holy Spirit, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Our sexuality points to what theologians call complementarity. The fact is, men and women are of one kind, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 39. But even though we are one kind, we are not the same. 
This is true in several respects. In fact, as Scripture indicates and common sense shows, men and women are different anatomically. The Bible tells us Adam named his wife woman because she was distinct from him. He is a man. She was a woman, as we see in Genesis 2, verse 23. Only a man can provide the raw material by which to procreate. Only a woman can bear children and nurse them. Of course, even non-Christian scientists have recognized the bodily differences of the sexes. Anne and Bill Moyer, for example, note that men have on average 10 times more testosterone than women. And studies show that women talk more than men and use a vocabulary that is different enough to be statistically significant. We even know that we are distinct emotionally. The scripture gives voice to this reality when it calls godly husbands to treat their wives as the weaker vessel and challenges fathers to not provoke their children, that in 1 Peter 3 verse 7 and Colossians 3 verse 19. These and other patterns constitute the markers of our manhood and womanhood. Our differences, as is clear, are considerable. In fact, they are also God-given. Dear friends, we complement one another. And this owes to God's original design. We're told in the Bible that God created Adam, but there was not a helper fit for him. We're told that in Genesis 2.18. So the Lord in his kindness and wisdom made a woman called Eve. And when we read about that, we find she instantly delighted Adam when brought to him. Genesis 2 verse 23 says, This at last, and this is a declaration of Adam, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he cried out. Her womanhood did not escape Adam. In fact, her womanhood captivated him. You know, I'm reminded that Satan has always tried to usurp the created order. In fact, we know at the beginning he took the form of a serpent to entice the man and woman. We read about that in Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7. Now, Adam, we know, was called by God to exercise dominion over animals, and yet an animal mastered Adam in the fall. In fact, Adam was the head of his wife, but he relinquished his headship when he allowed Satan to tempt his wife, and when he let his wife lead him to eat the forbidden fruit. Now, while she was duped about the consequences of her rebellion, she knowingly led her husband into this sin of disobedience. This is a portrait of her rejection of God. In fact, the Lord indicted Adam for his failure to lead Eve by asking him this, Where are you? Indicating that Adam had responsibility to protect his wife. He failed in this holy task, however, paving the way for Eve to disobey God. Adam's failure led to Eve's, and both of them were held guilty by the Lord. In fact, the just curse he pronounced on their humanity had spiritual and physical consequences. Both of them lost eternal life and brought the judgment of eternal death on the human race. Their bodies, given to them to glorify the Lord, would now bear the marks of fallenness in gender-specific ways. Adam's work of provision was cursed, as the ground would now fight him as he worked on it. Eve's childbearing was cursed, and what was meant to be a beautiful process began, became actually a painful, even life-threatening one. And of course, we know it went further than that. The sexes, men and women, were also put in competition. 
And Eve, the Lord said, would now have a desire for her husband in Genesis 3.16. This word is also used in Genesis 4, verse 7, where God tells Cain that sin's desire is for him, which means that evil is seeking to master and rule over him. So what did it mean in the curse when the Lord said that Eve would now have a desire for her husband? He was telling her that the woman would now seek to lead, even to dominate her husband. And when we listen to Satan, pain and brokenness follow, and the gender roles laid out for us in Scripture are undermined and attacked. Of course, we now see the profound tension between God's design and Satan's attacks on this design. The Lord created man and woman and gives them specific roles to play for his glory. Satan targets man and woman and induces them to upend God's design. God orders and structures, but Satan tears down. God brings life, but Satan destroys it. These tragic patterns are as old as the earth. They are not new, but they do change and morph with the times. And the fact is, today, what we see happening in Western culture is Western culture making good on this rebellion. Today, we see the culture denying the distinctiveness of divine creation. It tears down the uniqueness of the sexes, and it rebels against the lordship of Jesus Christ. The wisdom and the design of God is rejected, and the word of God in some is reviled. So we ask the question, how does our culture now think of the body in light of this rebellion? Well, over the last 50 years, American Christians have watched as our society has fashioned a brave new order for itself. Feminism and the sexual revolution have transformed the American home. Many men have lost any sense of responsibility for their family. They're tuned out, they're passive, they are self-focused. And, of course, many women feel great tension between their career and home. They are told by secular lifestyle magazines to pursue perfect work-life balance. But the fact is it's hard to find. And increasingly, just as we were told from Genesis chapter 3, the sexes, male and female, are in competition. In fact, these troubling developments represent phase one of the transformation of men and women. Phase two, of course, was the spread of the homosexual movement. Led by celebrities in the 1980s, the homosexual movement built off of the momentum of the feminist push and the sexual revolution. It sought to mainstream homosexual behavior. Men and women, it assumed, were not different in any meaningful way. In fact, the moral constraints of the biblical worldview had already been cast off. Romantic love was not subject to any shape or design, these uh, activists argued. It was just a feeling, and as such it had no duties, no covenantal dimensions, and no enduring commitment. If it persisted, great. If the feeling of love died out, then the relationship died with it. And of course, in phase one, gender roles were recast. In phase two, romantic love was recast. And in phase three, something that we're experiencing now, the body itself is recast. Enter into this now, the transgender moment. 
Now, in this third phase, as I've described it, transgender ideology is grounded in the idea that the body isn't an essential part of our being. This is a a viewpoint known as essentialism. Our gender identity, so-called, is argued to be fluid, a social construct that can change. We may well be a man trapped in a woman's body, for example. Our identity does not necessarily match our body, they argue. In such instances, many transgender people, so-called, opt for reconstructive surgery so their identity fits with their body. This is actually an essentialist view, ironically, even though they deny essentialism. Well, this trend is building momentum today. The show Transparent has received prominent placement on a platform like Amazon Prime with a lead character embracing a transgender identity. Minnesota high schools took action at the end of the year 2014. Of course, that seems like a lifetime ago. And they allowed transgender children to play on either boys' or girls' sports teams, whichever they choose. In the states of Maine and California, students identifying as transgender can use whichever restroom they desire. And of course, celebrities promote this viewpoint in their own homes with leading film stars such as Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie publicly encouraging some time ago their daughter Shiloh to call herself John and dress up in boys' clothes. The new way to approach the body is to see it as an art project, so-called, a means of self-expression, rather than as the creation of the divine mind, God in heaven, and a means of God glorification. This is a terrible development, and it should be clear to Christians that this latest phase of our culture's shift away from the Judeo-Christian worldview, it is a major one. We are witnessing the undoing of the most basic realities of God's created order. And in such a climate, what should we do? That is the question. Let me now suggest four responses on the part of Christians. Here are these suggestions. First, we should recognize that we are witnessing moral anarchy as Western nations abandon all semblance of biblical authority. There is nothing more essential to our lives than our manhood or womanhood. Our culture is embracing transgender identity and is thus uprooting the very structure of our bodily existence. Of course, to reject this reality is to embrace chaos And what I'm afraid of, we're already seeing. Untold numbers of boys and girls will be harmed by doing so. And most significantly, God is not honored or obeyed. Of course, we're now realizing, and we have known for some time, that the rates of suicide amongst transgender people show the brokenness that this choice causes. Paul McHugh, former Johns Hopkins University psychiatrist-in-chief, has noted in the Wall Street Journal that the suicide rate among transgender individuals is 20 times higher than in the normal population. Embracing transgender identity at the cultural level does not produce happiness and wholeness. It goes hand-in-hand with personal confusion and disorder. Now, my second suggestion is this— we should celebrate the beauty of God's creative design. The fact is the Christian church and the godly family should be a festival of happiness. We should rejoice that God in his sovereign wisdom has opened our eyes to see that he has made us according to his perfect design. 
Manhood and womanhood aren't plan B, my friends. God himself has made us as we are. We are the pinnacle of his creation. The fact is, God's creative work is undermined across the board today. Even in evangelical church settings, it is increasingly acceptable to teach that humanity isn't really that special. We hear pastors preaching that Adam and Eve weren't literally the first man and woman. They say they were merely selected from a group of hominids to represent humanity. Of course, we know this is false. It absolutely pushes against the record of the book of Genesis. And I'm happy to say that the Bible speaks a better word than this. And yet the danger is still there. A secularizing, darkening world seeks to demystify the human body. I believe God in his word dignify the human body, showing us that our bodies were made not only for utility, they were made for worship of our creator. Christians celebrate the beauty of the body and of manhood and womanhood, for we see that we owe our form to divine design from God our creator. And so we should celebrate the beauty of God's created design. In terms of a third suggestion, I believe we should recommit ourselves to training our children, training our children. The bodily differences between men and women are real. They speak to differences in our makeup, specifically designed by our creator. In practical form, we must teach these differences to our children. They must see that being a boy or a girl is a matter of God's glory. There should be no shame in boys liking boyish things or in girls adopting girlish behaviors. Christians should encourage this kind of awareness. In fact, many parents will find that their children genuinely enjoy being a boy or a girl, a future man or a future woman. We should regularly remind our kids that it was God who made them as they are, and we should encourage them to embrace and assume manhood or womanhood. You know, when we do so, we're imitating the pattern of wise biblical parents. Be strong, David said to his son Solomon, and show yourself a man, that in 1 Kings 2 verse 2. You know, parents cannot guarantee the godliness of their children, of course. Solomon clearly chose to exhibit his manhood in sinful ways. But the fact is we can shepherd our children and exalt the goodness of manhood and womanhood. My friends, the danger is real. If we do not teach our kids about gender and sexuality, we can be assured that our unbiblical culture will. The culture makers who disobey scripture are persuasive, forceful, and eager to indoctrinate our children. In fact, I'm sad to say that the public school system itself is enemy number one in this cultural revolution. And so fathers and mothers must recommit themselves to training their children in the scriptural worldview so that children do not embrace the cultural one. One of the best things that you can do for your family, and you might have to sacrifice to do this, is to either commit yourself to Christian homeschooling or put your children in Christian schools so that they can avoid the anti-God, anti-Christ public education of many of our public schools today. That would be a sacrifice, no doubt, for many, and yet it is one that might save the very souls of your children. 
And of course, if we do not teach our kids about gender and sexuality, we know that our unbiblical culture will. And so we need to take the lead on this and think about our God-given responsibilities to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of God. My fourth suggestion is this. We should reach out in compassion and call for repentance. We must reach out to those cursed by Adam's fall, just as we were as Christians. We may feel a a kind of visceral response to sin and its effects, but this response must never quiet our instinct to show mercy to lost people. The fact is, transgender individuals will be increasingly common in our neighborhoods and communities, and we have a choice. We can sinfully avoid them, or we can seek to reach out to them in kindness and conviction and evangelize them. You know, conversion for transgender individuals will not be neat and clean. It likely will be messy. It will involve the recognition that sin has corrupted us in every fiber of our being. But my friends, I feel confident in this. The gospel is stronger than sin. Christ's death washes us clean and Christ's resurrection gives us life. The resurrection raised Christ's spirit even as it renewed his body. And of course, church leaders, pastors, preachers should preach on the implications of the resurrection for all people, including transgender people. Coming to faith has profound implications for our bodies. For people who have embraced a transgender identity, repentance will mean embracing their God-given gender and rejecting whatever sinful identity they have chosen. And so we conclude in this way. The talking animals of Walt Disney films and, and pop culture, they have charmed many of us. But the fact is, a Disney-fied concept of narcissistic self-determination has not done us any favors as the transgender moment, as well as the feminist movement and the homosexual movement have taught us. The culture, my friends, has offered us a false gospel, a false hope, and one that approves of all that we do, no matter how depraved it is. It leaves us to pursue anything that we desire. So let me suggest here at the end of the Preacher Cast today that the scriptural gospel is far better. It makes sense of our humanity. It restores our dignity. It calls us to be men and women who see our body as a gift, a vessel by which we may give glory to our Maker and Redeemer. Now, this may sound too good to be true, but the church exists to make this one thing clear. This is no fairy tale. It is the message of Scripture and the hope of us all.